This morning we're looking at uh, Galatians chapter 2. We're sort of jumping in into the middle of a letter that Paul, Paul wrote to, to the church in Galatia. And um, from what Paul writes in the letter, we can sort of piece together the story that's behind it. Like, why is Paul writing these things? What are, what are some of the dynamics? And I'll get into that as we get into, as we get into talking about it. Um, so Galatians 2, 11 through the end of the chapter. Um, and I wasn't going to do this, but here I am doing it. Um, so some weeks are weird, and this was one of those weeks for me, and I don't know, I don't know why for sure. Um, but as I was practicing, so, so my, my routine is I write a sermon and I practice it on Saturday and then I practice it again on Sunday morning and then I'm, so that I'm ready. And as I was practicing it yesterday, I was like, oh man, this message is a mess. Like, I, would, I didn't like it. I was like, I don't know what to do, but I don't have time to redo it. So it's like, I got to deal with it. Let's just go. And, and then this morning, I was like, it's a mess. This is a big, fat mess, and I can't. So there's this section in my sermon that uh, I was okay with yesterday. And then this morning, I'm like, no, no, not going to work. That's not going to work. So I've changed it. I don't know if this is going to work. So that's how I'm feeling this morning. And uh, if, if it's a mess, uh, I, you were warned, um, and that's where I'm at. And I feel, I've, I feel good that I'm in a place where I can uh, say that and be honest about it, and you all will hopefully still like me. Um, so, uh, yeah, Galatians 2, 11 through 21. Before we read, let's pray. God, thank you for, uh, for, for the scriptures. Thank you for this book. Um, we, we come to it with a, with a sense of humility and a sense of openness. Because um, we have to. We don't, know, we don't know any other way. And we ask that you would further open our hearts and our minds and, and somehow, however it is that it works, Spirit, you, you show up and you do your thing and we hear, we hear the voice of the divine somehow mixed into all of this. And so move in our hearts, change us and mold us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul's writing to these people in Galatia. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Right? So... Here's a Jewish person. He's living among the Gentiles. He's kind of, he's fine with it. He's, he's acting like them. He's sort of adopting some of their, their customs. And then some Jewish people come into town. He's like, ooh, can't do that anymore. I got to step back. So that's kind of what's going on here. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in front of all of them, 
You're a Jew, yet you live like the Gentiles and not a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person isn't justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? No, absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. I do not set aside the grace of God. We will go that far. So, here's another reason why this whole thing is a mess this morning for me. And so a couple years ago, I listened to this podcast. And it stuck with me. The ideas are there. Uh, I remember it very clearly. Here's the problem. I don't remember where this podcast came from. I don't know which one it was. Uh, and trust me, I have searched for hours trying to find it because it was so good and because I wanted to get a group together here at Renew to listen to it, but I don't remember which podcast it was. I don't remember the name of the person I'm about to tell you about. You're just going to have to trust me that this actually really happened. So, um, like I said, we're off to a great start. So here's the podcast. It was an interview with a, with a, a, a scientist. Um, and this scientist was formerly a very religious person, and, but now had turned agnostic. And so he was telling the story uh, about why he turned agnostic. And it was very simple for him. Now living among scientific community, he realized that, that people in the scientific community just lived more authentic lives than people in his religious community, like way more authentic lives than people. And he said, people in religious communities find it very, very difficult to change. People in religious communities find it very, very difficult to change their mind. Once you believe something or you're told you have to believe something and you believe something, it becomes very difficult for religious people to change their minds. But, but scientific people, oh my goodness, they just live way more authentic lives. And then he went on to talk about the scientific method, right? How you hold certain beliefs about reality, but you do so loosely because you're like, I might be wrong. And then you come up with a hypothesis, and then you test it. We're all familiar with this, right? You do experiments. You learn something new, and suddenly what you believed before, you recognize, nope, I've learned something new. Now I've learned that this is how things really are. I once thought this way, but through this process of experimentation, now I understand things different. So you learn, you grow, you, uh, 
you change your mind through experimentation and learning, right? And as he was talking about this and his experience with religious communities, I began to realize that this scientist and many in the scientific community live into some theological themes better than a lot of religious people do. And the themes I'm thinking about are repentance and sanctification. Have you heard these words before? Theological words, repentance, sanctification. Repentance simply means changing your mind. Metanoia, change your mind. Or you could think of it like this. You're walking in one direction, you turn around and you walk in the other direction. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is near. Repent, change your mind and believe this good news. So repentance, it's not simply saying you're sorry, I messed up. No, it's changing your mind. And then sanctification is the process by which we are being made holy, different, set apart. I like to think of it like this. We're becoming more authentically who God has created us to be. We are becoming more authentically human. We are becoming more connected to the divine. So I began to realize as I was listening to this guy talk about his experience with the religious community and the scientific community was that many in the scientific community live into those realities better than, better than us religious people often. They go through a process of authentic evolution. Or if you don't like that word evolution, you can think of it like this, authentic transformation. Or we could just simply say growth right? So authentic evolution, an experience of authentic evolution or transformation. I don't know why I like that phrase. I want you to hold on to it because I'll, I'll bring it back a little bit later. First, we got to get a handle on what's going on in the church in Galatia. So this is a letter written by Paul to a little church in Galatia. Now, when Paul wrote this letter, you've got the Roman Empire in control, in charge. So they sort of set the culture. It was built on distinctions and differences between people. And there were plenty of divisions and categories that defined uh, who people were and how they were to live their lives. And we don't know anything about this, right? Like this is totally foreign. No, we have these two distinctions, categories that define who you are and how we are to live their lives. And back then, if you were Jewish, this was especially so. So God had chosen the nation of Israel, called them his own, gave them a set of laws by which they were to live their lives. Now this law was full of all sorts of different things. Things like dietary restrictions, feasts that they were to observe, who was considered clean, who was considered unclean. If you became unclean, these are the things and steps you need to do in order to become clean Right? Jewish males had to be circumcised, so laws, divisions, distinctions, categories, all of these things sort of allowed the nation of Israel to, to persist for hundreds of years. And these laws and customs sort of defined who they were. They were, they'd become sort of the essence of their community. So obeying these laws, following these rules and rituals, justified them before God, made them right with God. Are you with me? Now, 
Then all of a sudden, this other Jewish sect popped up called Christianity. It was new. It was different. It was beautiful. It was, it was full of grace. And Jewish people from all over the place had heard about Jesus. They heard about how he lived this just beautiful life. How he, how he died an unjust death. And then how he rose from the grave. And they believed. They believed that he was the Messiah, the chosen one, the one who bore their sins on the cross. So they accepted. They loved it. The only problem was they didn't want to give up their, their old way of living. They didn't want to give up what they knew. They didn't want to give up their heritage, the thing that made them who they were. They didn't want to give up their, their Jewishness. So then when they heard about these other people from the outside, these outsiders, Gentiles, these people were beginning to follow Jesus too, entering into their community, they got uncomfortable. Like really uncomfortable. So as a result, they sent groups of teachers into these Gentile regions to teach them. We call them Judaizers. So they would go into Gentile regions to teach them exactly what they needed to do in order to follow Jesus, in order to be justified, in order to be made right with God. And the essence of their teaching was this. You've got, you got to become insiders. Right? Gentiles had to become Jews. In other words, if Gentiles wanted to be a part of the Christian community and become right with God, they had to follow all the dietary laws. They had to follow all the feasts. The males had to be circumcised, and on and on and on. 613 little rules all together. So then when Paul heard about it, he wasn't happy. In fact, this is Paul's angriest letter, and it might be why I like it so much, because he's like bucking the system big time with this one. Right? He writes this angry letter to one of these churches, the, church, the letter we call Galatians. In it, he tells them, no. You're saved by grace, not by works. We're all familiar with this. Saved by grace. He says, a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus. He goes on, so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So get that. He's writing to people who want to be justified, who want to be made right with God. They want to be accepted by God. They wanted to, to live in a, in a whole and healthy relationship with the divine. But what Paul discovered is that obeying the law doesn't get the job done. It doesn't get the job done because no one can do it perfectly. And how did Paul come to this conclusion? had an experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus. But he also tried it and found that it didn't work. Like a good scientist, he experimented. He lived his life according to the law better than anyone else. Like all Jews growing up, Paul grew up believing that he would be justified, that he would be made right with God 
by doing all of the things and living according to all the laws that you find in Scripture. And he was good at it too. He was the best at it. Listen to what he wrote to the Philippians. He wrote this about himself. Look, man, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Like I was as Hebrew as you could get. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness under the law, faultless. In other words, Paul did the thing. He lived his life that way. Then he goes on to say, yet whatever gains I had, I now regard them as rubbish. Rubbish. Another way you could translate that word rubbish is a word I can't say in church. Starts with an S, has an H in it. I'll let you fill in the rest. Whatever gains I had, he feels strongly about this. Whatever gains I had, I consider it all rubbish. Rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ. He says we are loved and accepted, made right with God through faith in Christ. You know what Paul went through? You understand what he went through here? He went through an authentic evolution. He used to believe this one thing. Tried it out. Didn't work. Had an experience with Jesus. Changed his mind. He went through an authentic transformation, an authentic evolution of faith. Through experimentation, he went from thinking that the law would get the job done to understanding that faith in Jesus is what gets the job done. And I think this affects us in a couple of different ways. The first one is this. It affects how we approach God. It affects how we conceive of and how we approach the divine. Listen, there aren't a bunch of rules we have to live by in order to experience the love and grace of God. There isn't a checklist. There isn't a, there isn't a, a list where we can put check marks by where we, we, we believe the right things, then we are loved and accepted by God. There aren't a bunch of things we have to do in order to put ourselves in the position to live in a right relationship with God. There aren't a bunch of, of things we are, cry, we are required to do or believe in order to belong to the Christian club. There aren't a bunch of things we're required to do in order to distinguish between who's in and who's out. Let me make it as simple as I can. There's nothing we are required to do, nor in fact that we actually can do to make us eligible to receive the love and grace of God. Absolutely no requirements. God just loves. God just offers grace. All we have to do is be open to receive it. The love and grace of God knows no boundaries, period. So we can approach God with confidence, right? With confidence that God won't condemn us. Hear me. We don't have to be afraid of the divine. We don't have to be afraid of the divine. 
we don't have to fear God. Instead, an experience of the love of God will transform us. We will, an experience of the love and grace of God gives us authentic evolution, authentic transformation. So here's the part in the sermon where I'm like, no. So I'm going to try something different. I don't know if it's going to work. So as I think about this idea and I think about my life and I think about our life at home, and I didn't ask you if, if I could do this. I think I'll be accurate. But you can change. I'm talking to Renee. You can change and amend this later if we need to. But I think about our home and I think about the culture that we try to create in our own home. The last thing we want is for our own children to be afraid of us. Because if we create a culture of fear and our kids make a mistake, our kids are in school, they make a mistake, they make a mess of their grades, they're struggling in a class, they're struggling with relationships, they're struggling with questions of, of faith and reality. If we create a culture of fear that if they come to us with any of this, then we're going to be mad and angry. Then they're going to feel alienated. They're going to feel alone. They're going to feel lost. And we're going to lose them. So we try to create a culture where if they're feeling scared, if they've made a mistake, if, they've, if they're questioning something, they can come to us with absolutely anything because this will sound familiar to you guys. Micah's not listening, that's fine. I'll deal with you later. No, that's not what we're trying to do. <laughs> no. We, we, if they're struggling with something, they can come to us because there's nothing they can do. There's nothing they can say. There's no mistake big enough there's no screw-up large enough that will make us love them less. So we want to create a place where they can come to us with anything and the experience of the love and grace of mom and dad will give them an opportunity to learn and to grow and experience authentic evolution and transformation, right? That's, and you know what? I see a lot of nods, so this isn't, this is, you know, I thought I was going off in the wilderness, but I feel like we're all here together. This is like a, this is like, most parents believe this, right? Most of us try to create that kind of environment at home. And I know that there are all kinds of non-religious parents who try to create that culture at home too. Which means when we as a society, as a world, have decided that that's a better way to parent, not fear-based parenting, but love and grace 
parenting, why would God be some why would God take a step back from that if we've figured it out? And why do so many religious institutions create cultures of fear? Where if we don't believe the right things, or we're even questioning things or doubting things, why do we feel like we don't belong now? Or why are we afraid now? If I change my mind about something, I might not belong here. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of the divine. We are made right with God through faith in Christ. We can approach God with confidence that God won't condemn us. Instead, an experience of God's love will transform us. And we now have the opportunity to experience authentic evolution, authentic transformation. Here's the second way I think this affects us. We are transformed from the inside out. From the inside out. And this is sort of the opposite of what, how we normally think, or maybe from what many of us have been given. Like no, Most of the time our thinking goes like this. Well, if I just do the right things, if I act the right way, if I believe the right things, if I say the proper words, if I know the right things about God, then I will just naturally become a better person. Now, some of those things will rub off and probably make us better people, right? But I think the scriptures point us in a different direction. We become better people from, from the inside out. Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God. I live by faith in the Son of God. But those words can also be translated differently. They can also be translated like this. I live by the faith of the Son of God, moving from our faith, something that we do, to the faith of Christ in us. That makes a big difference. Suddenly, we're not living by our own faith. We're living by Christ's faith. Our values have now been changed and repurposed, creatively transformed, or authentically transformed from the inside out with Christ's own faithfulness moving in us and through us. He goes on to say, I've been crucified with Christ. It's not, I don't, I don't live anymore. It's not me. It's Christ who lives in me, transformed from the inside out. If we no longer live and Christ now is the one who lives in us, that changes everything. It means that everyday, ordinary things are suddenly imbued with great significance. Like we don't have to adopt a whole new set of practices. Everyday, ordinary things are now imbued with great significance. They're transformed because it's Christ living in us. Right? We all have practices we do every day, right? We don't necessarily have to adopt a whole new list. Then it just becomes another set of legalism, another set of laws that we have to do in order to belong to the community. No, we already have all sorts of things that we all do. We all wash dishes, clean the house. Some of us are still changing diapers. I'm glad I'm not anymore. 
Some of y'all are. You go for walks, you drive to work, you talk with friends, you meet with neighbors and loved ones. We have things that we do every day. We go to work, we go to school. Kids are going to play baseball this afternoon, right? All ordinary things, all practices. Now those practices, the everyday ordinary things that we do, now are transformed because Christ lives in us. Christ lives in us. So it's not as if we're doing those, but Christ is doing those with us. And as we continue to walk with that awareness that Christ is living in us, what do you think happens? Like, we live our lives, our own lives, in a way that Christ would if He were us. And we go through the process of authentic evolution, of authentic transformation. And we then help others experience authentic evolution and transformation by offering the same love, the same grace, the same acceptance that we've been given from God to the world. Let's pray.